Our first reading this morning is from Genesis, chapter 25, verses 27 to 34, which can be found in the Old Testament portion of your pew Bible. That's on page 21, if you'd like to follow along. Listen now for the word of God for you and for me. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man living in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he was fond of game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stuff, for I am famished. Therefore, he was called Edom. Jacob said, first, sell me your birthright. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is my birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Amen. Thanks, Kate. Our... uh... Our second text is from the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, chapter 12, verses 14 through 17. It can be found on page 213 in the New Testament section of the Bible. I should say that the text that Kate just read from Genesis 25 is part of the lectionary for today. It's part of that three-year cycle of reading and hearing the Word of God read. And that this passage from Hebrews is an interpretation of that earlier text. So let us listen now for a word from God. Pursue peace with everyone and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and through it many become defiled. See to it that no one becomes like Esau, an immoral and godless person who sold his birthright for a single meal. You know that later, when he wanted to inherit a blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, even though he sought the blessing with tears. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Loving and living God, we are grateful, as always, for the opportunity to gather together for worship. As we turn our hearts now to these texts, we pray that you would send your spirit, your very same spirit that hovered over the waters of creation and inspired the prophets of the Hebrew Bible, the spirit that filled the lungs of Elizabeth and Mary and Simeon, that that very same spirit would be poured on us today, that these ancient words might become for us living and active, that we would be shaped for your work and service in the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I think I remember the day pretty well. I might have some of the details a little wrong. Maybe I'll emphasize certain things, but I I think I have the day pretty well. I, I think it was fairly overcast that day, 
I was an eighth grader and my brother Jason was a freshman in college. He had come home recently from one of his breaks from school. I think it might have been Thanksgiving, but maybe it was Christmas break. It was that time of year. We had taken his car over to one of the local elementary schools to play basketball. I'm sure at this point in the break, whichever break it was, my parents were happy to have us out of the house for a while. And so we went and played basketball. But we weren't just shooting hoops together. That would be way too chill and way too civil for my brother and me. For just about as long as I can remember, he and I were competitive in just about anything that you could imagine. Swimming, of course, we both grew up competitive swimmers, video games, tennis, and even mowing the lawn. We used to get so mad at each other playing video games that we wouldn't speak to each other for a week, even when we shared the same car to go to swim practice because of the relentless beating one of us gave to the other in NHL hockey or NCAA football. So no, we weren't just practicing our free throw shots. We were battling. On that particular day, we were playing the game 21. It's a basketball game that can be played with two or more people, but let me be clear, it is not a team game. Each person is out on their own, fighting for every point that they so deservedly earn. If you go over 21, so the, the goal is to score 21 points, right? That makes you the winner. And if you go over 21, even by just one point, you don't win, you don't get an extra sticker, you go back to 13 and get to try to work your way back up to 21. To add another sort of uh, mix to the game, if you tip the basketball into the basket off of your opponent's shot, their score gets cut in half and they get to build themselves back up. So you can imagine it's a pretty hard and, and tough individual game of fighting back and forth. And when you play one-on-one, -on -one, or at least when my brother and I played one-on-one, -on -one, it was often a very physical game with one person driving hard into the basket to make an easy layup. So what you need to know about this story is that my brother is four years older than me and that as long as I can remember, he's always been bigger than me. He's a good 6'4", and I'm 5'9", on a really, really good day. And in our youth, he was always at least 30 pounds heavier than me. So I'm not saying it was a David and Goliath sort of event, but it got close. Needless to say, his size, his age, meant that I didn't win a lot of these games of 21. But on that fateful, overcast day, whether it was in Thanksgiving or Christmas break, I did win. I pushed my eighth grade weight around like I was an NBA center. I'm sure there were ups and downs. He probably was up for a while, then he got knocked down. But in the end, I won. And it was probably the only time in our thousand games that I actually won. But you better believe that I let him know it for the next several months. 
sibling rivalry. Unless you're an only child, it's hard to escape childhood or sometimes even to navigate adulthood without some experience of sibling rivalry. While films like Frozen and novels like Pride and Prejudice celebrate the indelible and loving bond between siblings, lived experience is often a little more complicated. We love our siblings, but it's not always easy. The Jacob and Esau story in the book of Genesis is probably one of the Bible's most famous stories of sibling rivalry. And I'm sure that most of you remember at least parts or segments of the story. The two twin boys are the children of Isaac and Rebekah. We learned early in Genesis 25 that Rebekah was barren for the better part of their marriage, but that God granted Isaac's prayer that Rebekah would conceive. But after all of this time waiting, Rebekah had a hard pregnancy. The, the text says that, that uh, the, the hardship was due to the children struggling inside of her, inside of her womb. Now, the text doesn't say this, but if we, if we have our sanctified imaginations, we can imagine these, these two children, these two little developing bodies punching and, and kicking with one another inside of the womb of Rebekah. Things get so bad at one point that Rebecca seeks insight from God about what is going on and why is this pregnancy so hard. And in verse 23, we hear God's explanation. God says, there are two nations in your womb and two people born of you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The elder shall serve the younger. God's pronouncement here is vital for understanding the story of Jacob and Esau. First, these two children within her represent two nations. Jacob will become the father of the Israelites, and Esau will become the father of the Edomites. The Hebrew Bible doesn't have a ton to say about Edom or the Edomites, but when it does say something, it's not all that good. It's usually bad. If you want to see a really clear example, just read the prophet Obadiah when you get home. I'm sure you all will do that. In the case of Jacob and Esau, sibling rivalry is a cipher. It's a, it's a symbol. It's a sign for a long-standing resentment between these two opposing people groups. Second, and most importantly, God says that the elder shall serve the younger. Esau will serve Jacob. Here God's pronouncement stands in stark contrast to the ancient and long-standing tradition of blessing the firstborn son. As Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann explains, this tradition was the linchpin of an entire social and legal system that protected the rights and privileges of the oldest male child. But God's explanation to Rebecca about what's going on inside of her indicates that God's promise and God's grace 
will upend that very social system. God will disrupt this world of privilege. The elder shall serve the younger. As Brueggemann notes, Jacob is announced as a visible expression of God's scandalous grace, a grace that upsets conventional definitions of prosperity and subverts expected social arrangements. Now, God's pronouncement may make you think that this reversal, this manifestation of God's scandalous grace is a foreordained thing, as if, Isaiah, as if Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Esau are mere decorations on the stage of God's sovereign activity. But that's not the case at all. If you follow the rest of the story, through the brothers' actions, they bring God's word and purposes to fulfillment. Even the brothers' bargaining in Genesis 25 goes so far as to implement the purposes of God, according to Brueggemann. As the youngest child in my family, I really should identify with Jacob. I imagine that the homebody Jacob is physically smaller than the outdoorsy and very hairy Esau. Why shouldn't I love Jacob? The younger triumphs over the older. It's like the youngest dream come true. But Jacob, like many of the characters in the Bible, is far from perfect. In our text this morning that Kate read, he seems like a ruthless businessman who is unaffected by his brother's desperate hunger and exhaustion. He takes advantage of his brother in his time of profound need. And later in their story together, he even tricks his dad into bestowing the blessing of the firstborn on him instead of on Esau. Jacob seems like a cutthroat competitor who will do just about whatever it takes to get to the top. While it's hard for me to say this as a fellow youngest child, Jacob is kind of a jerk in these early stories. And then we think about Esau. What is so bad about Esau in the story in Genesis 25? I guess we could say he's a little short-sighted. He gives up his lifelong rights as a firstborn child for a bowl of lentils. So maybe he's not the brightest bulb in the pack. Perhaps we could say he's too easily duped by his younger brother. Or maybe we could say he's just unlucky, a tragic character destined to fulfill God's pronouncement to Rebecca unawares. Later, Jewish tradition is not kind to Esau. The rabbis reserve the title evil for some pretty unsavory folks. Pharaoh, who you will remember, enslaved the Israelites and murder, murdered thousands of innocent boys. Balaam, who seduced Israel into idolatry. Nebuchadnezzar, who destroyed the first temple. Haman, who tried to eliminate the Jewish people entirely, and Titus, who destroyed the second temple. The identification of these figures as bad or evil by the rabbis makes sense. It's surprising then to see that they also include Esau 
among that gnarly list of characters. The Midrash explains that Esau was not born bad. He was actually born righteous and was righteous for much of his early life while he was still under the care and the protection of his grandfather, Abraham. But at Abraham's death, he succumbed to his desires and became something of a wild hunter in the wilderness. Later, Jewish tradition is even more harsh on Esau. The 11th century French rabbi Rashi consistently denigrates Esau. According to Rashi, Esau worshipped idols from the womb. He was wicked by nature. He was destined to shed blood. He was lazy and a liar. He was a murderer, and he even spurned God. It feels like Esau had the wrong PR guy in antiquity. And we see this negativity in the text that I read from Hebrews this morning. The author of Hebrews holds up Esau as a negative example, identifying him as an immoral and godless person who sold his birthright for a single meal. For the author of Hebrews, Esau's compromise or his moment of weakness is irreversible and final. He loses out on the chance for blessing altogether. It's important to note here that the author of Hebrews reads the Jacob and Esau story a bit selectively, and he ignores at least parts of how the story ends, which I'll say more about in a few moments. But for the author of Hebrews, Esau is this warning sign for those Christians in the first century who might abandon the Christian community because of persecution or who might accommodate to the demands of the Roman Empire. So what is Esau's error? What did he get wrong? For the weeks leading up to this sermon, I've been wrestling and thinking about this question. And much of my thinking about this question has been informed by a discussion that I had with our Reading the Bible Together group. This group has been meeting since the fall of 2020 on Zoom during the height of the pandemic, and we've kept meeting for almost three years now. We've read nearly all of the Bible together in our time uh, over those three years, and we've read parts of it twice. It's a wonderful group and a great way to study scripture, if I don't say so myself, though I may be just a little biased about that. So on this particular day when we explored Genesis 25, we did so using an ancient practice called Lectio Divina. Lectio Divina is a way of reading and engaging and meditating on scripture in which you are listening for a word or a phrase that stands out to you. And then as you hear the text read a second and a third and a fourth time, you begin to listen for what that word might mean for you personally and what God might be saying to you through that word or about that word. It's a meaningful spiritual practice for groups as well as individuals. And so as we read and discussed Genesis 25 together, there were, there were two words that really stuck out to the members of this group, famished and despised. 
On the one hand, many in the group could empathize with Esau and his being famished. They found in his being famished an opportunity to express their own experience of being spiritually famished, of having a deep and real hunger for God's spirit or God's presence. Others expressed feeling famished for things like love, recognition, peace, and even appreciation. On the other hand, some reflected on the word despised. Some commented on how they may despise a part of their family of origin, their own birthright, if you will, while they cherished other parts of it. Others felt that this word despised conveyed a sense of the hatred and contempt that they see in the world around them. Our discussion and my subsequent reflection on this passage got me thinking that maybe, just maybe, there is a little bit of Esau in all of us. After all, we are all prone to weakness. We've all experienced that sense of being famished physically, emotionally, or spiritually. And like Esau, we can be short-sighted. We can cut corners or make ethically questionable decisions. We can reduce others to what they can do for us or give to us or be to us instead of recognizing their full humanity for who they are. We can build our lives around the things that offer immediate gratification instead of waiting or working for those things that actually and fully satisfy. I think we too easily sell our birthrights We forget that we are not what we make, we are not what we do, we are not where we live, we are not how we vote. We pretend like we are the gods of our own lives. We despise our own identities in Christ to make another dollar, to climb another rung on the social ladder, or to capture just a few more accolades or accomplishments. So maybe there is a little Esau in all of us. Maybe we are prone to Esau's error. Maybe each of us can think of a time when we've traded something invaluable for what in the end amounted to little more than a bowl of lentils. And while recognizing this tendency, this possibility, I do want to leave us with some good news from the text this morning. The first piece of good news is that God is not unaware of our experience of being famished. Whether we put on a happy face to come to church this morning or if we are barely holding back tears, God knows what it is like to feel empty to feel burnt out, to feel all alone. God knows it through the life of Jesus, who himself experienced hunger and thirst, rejection and abandonment, loneliness and disappointment. Jesus knew what it was to be famished, and so he can empathize with us. And more than that, Jesus offers us relief 
One of my favorite Bible verses is from Jesus's invitation in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God provides rest for the weary and restoration for the famished. The second piece of good news considers our birthright. Unlike Esau's birthright, our identity in Christ is not something that we can lose or we can sell. We may ignore it, we may despise it, but ultimately it doesn't depend on us. God has chosen us and we are God's. We belong to God. We have been created in God's image and we are being renewed into the image of Christ. And maybe, maybe just otherwise, you've heard otherwise. But I want to say today that there is nothing that you can do to undo God's love, to invalidate God's choice, to void God's claim on you. Remember who you are and remember whose you are. Finally, if we read the rest of the Jacob and Esau story, we find out that all of this converse, or all of this competition, all of this bargaining over the birthright is ultimately unnecessary. The God of scandalous grace, the God who chooses the younger over the older, is also a God of boundless abundance. In the end, Esau is also blessed. Esau also receives a people and a name. Ultimately, the rivalry between the brothers melts away into reconciliation through the abundance of God. At the end of this story, Jacob and Esau meet again. And Jacob, after seeing the 400 men that are coming at him in front of him from Esau, is pretty sure that Esau has come out to go to war and to ultimately kill Jacob. And so Jacob, always thinking ahead, sends some gifts ahead to Esau, hoping, of course, that this would placate him and preserve his life for just a few more days. But when they meet, finally, Jacob and Esau, Esau refuses the gifts. And he says, I have enough. Enough. More than enough. That's how the story of Jacob and Esau end. In enough and in abundance. While we live in a world shaped and controlled by a narrative of scarcity, we serve that God of abundance. While we live in a world haunted by death, we worship a God of resurrection. May we live and lead from this promise of God's abundance. With God, there is more than enough, more than enough love, more than enough grace, more than enough mercy, more than enough for you and for me and for this beautiful and broken world that God loves so much. Amen.